It is the Cam and Joe Show. We are making our way through a series through the month of August called Body Beautiful, looking at our image of our own bodies and how it impacts our mental health in a world where so much doesn't seem real. Let's keep these conversations real. Our next guest is the host of The You Project and has had his hand in coaching so many people, both physically and in the online space and through the podcast for many, many years. Craig Harper, it is great to have you here. Welcome. Hi, mate. Thanks for having me. Hi, Joe. Hello. Now, Craig, a lot of uh, your personal background prior to the podcast world was in personal training. You worked in gyms. You've been uh, fairly successful in coaching a lot of people over the years. How prevalent is this issue talking about your body image? Well, I mean, we've all got one, right? So, And we've all got an opinion about the one we live in. And it seems that everyone else has got an opinion about the one that we live in. And so I think, you know, navigating life, understanding that we're always going to be judged or evaluated to some level by how we look, which in an ideal world, that wouldn't happen, but we probably don't live in that ideal world. So the practical reality is, um, you know, I need to manage me. I need to manage my physical, mental and emotional health and they're all tied in together. Um, But I think, you know, right now there is especially perhaps more so on young people a a lot of pressure to look a certain way and to have a certain appearance and to be whatever a certain size or have abs or, you know, be super handsome or super pretty or whatever it is. And I think, you know, for me as an exercise scientist and also working with all of these people that I have over the years, the challenge is to figure out sometimes who you are beyond your appearance or who you are beyond your weight or who you are beyond your body or who you are beyond, in my case, you know, my biceps. I was just a young, insecure bodybuilder back in the day who just wanted approval and wanted to be loved and appreciated and attractive and all of that. And because I had rubbish self-esteem, I was always trying to get validation through my body. So that was my starting point. Um, As I'm listening to you, I just, you know, giggle because you say things so well and we can relate. Um, But I was just thinking, you know, most people when you get older kind of realize it was a waste of time when you were younger, focusing on the biceps or focusing on your body. But by that stage, you've kind of wasted a lot of your life focused on the wrong thing. As a mum of four kids, um, you know, young, you know, young adults and teens, how can you possibly get through to the younger generation to say it's a waste of time and get them to have the mindset of an older person's experience in a younger person's body? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, I mean, Joe, you can't make them think a certain way and you can't make them see the world the way that you see the world or I see the world. And by the way, that's not good or bad. That's just different, right? So, mm. but I think what you can do is talk to younger people about who they are beyond what they look like. And when your identity is intertwined with your appearance, that's kind of, a slippery slope to be on. Um, for a long time when I was younger, because I was a morbidly obese kid, I was 95 kilos when I was 14 years old. My name at school was Jumbo. Parents, teachers, kids called me Jumbo. And that's, you know, that's just the practical reality of life in the 70s and 80s. Um, for me, it was anyway. And then you grow up thinking that what I look like is who I am. And so I think helping them to understand that this is not who you are, it's just where you live. And of course, yes, we want to encourage kids to exercise and move and be healthy, 
Um, and but I guess coming from a perspective of you know wellness and function and that combination of physical, mental, emotional, and social health, and and realizing that you know obsessing about how you look, and you can't make people see this or feel this, but obsessing about how you look is really quite toxic and destructive. But nonetheless, um, there's a lot of obsession and. You know, I put up my hand and I say that was me when I was young. Like because when I was when I was a, an obese child, all I wanted to be was the opposite, because I thought being the opposite of what I was or how I looked would get me acceptance and belonging and connection and love. Craig, were there any landmarks along the way in that journey from where you were to where you are now? Because obviously it's not just a click of the fingers kind of thing and everything changes. But were yeah. there some landmarks along the way that in hindsight you can reflect were really key in that process and that journey for you? That is. Do you actually know the answer to the question? Because there is a, a land. Do you know the answer? No, to this I question? don't. I don't. <laughs> Well, it's funny you say that because I talk about this in my gig. So my landmark, or I call it my psychological, sociological, emotional, behavioral tipping point. So Malcolm Gladwell wrote a brilliant book called The Tipping Point. And I believe that often, Cam and Joe, we get to a point where something happens in our life and it's like a switch flicks or a light turns on. And that moment for me was the year eight swimming sports where I, every year at swimming sports, swimming carnival, when it was my race in inverted commas, <laughs> not that I was an athlete, <laughs> but I would go and hide because I didn't, the races had to keep going, but I didn't want to stand on a starting block at the end of a swimming pool in a pair of bathers with my 95 kilo body. I didn't want that. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want any attention in that sense. I didn't want people to see what I look like with not many clothes on. I was humiliated. And anyway, I I was going to do what I did every year, which was make a getaway and then come back after my race had run. And my swimming teacher or my sports teacher saw me doing that and he basically manhandled me back to the starting blocks and said, you've got to swim. And I don't blame him for that. It's like it just was what it was. And so I had to take off my T-shirt, which I would never, ever, ever voluntarily do in public. And I, I just wanted the earth to swallow me up. And um, so I got on and I swam. And, you know, and I'm sure nobody cared really. But for me, it was it was traumatic. And I know that's that seems over the top. But as a 14-year-old fat kid with no self-esteem, and horrible body image and no confidence. I was I was humiliated and embarrassed. And I got out of the pool and something happened. And I just went, I'm never, ever, ever going to feel that again. And that day I went home and I went for a run. <laughs> and when I say run, I mean kind of walk, jog. But that was the first time ever in my life I had chosen to do some kind of exercise. And that was that was almost the starting point of, what initially became a really healthy process and then ended up being somewhat unhealthy because I became obsessed with exercise. And, you know, so even things like, like food and exercise and lifestyle, we want to get them right, but there can be a point where that healthy behavior turns into an unhealthy obsession if we go down the wrong path. 
Um, do you have to be humiliated to have a life change? That is a great question too. Look at you too with the great questions. I don't think you do, Joe, but I think often what happens is there does need to be some event. Now, whether or not that's humiliation or or fear or anxiety or trauma, you know, like a lot of people make significant health decisions once they get diagnosed with diabetes or, you know, they get told they're going to have a heart attack within two years if they don't do something. You know, it's like me getting told, which we were talking about before we went live, you know, Craig, you've got cataracts, you're going to be blind by Christmas. Well, that's that's a big wake-up call. So mm. there was no hesitation in booking in for surgery. So, And it's amazing how proactive and productive and effective and consistent you can be when you believe there's no alternative. So I reckon the challenge is don't wait for the catastrophe. Don't be reactive, be proactive. Now, that doesn't mean that you've got to be obsessed or weird or over the top. You know, for me, I always... I say, you've you got one body, you can't get another one. You can get another job, you can get more money, get another car, you can get more, you can get more stuff, but you can't get another body. So don't mistreat it, don't abuse it. Um, you know, and again, it you don't need to be driven, of course, by ego or vanity, just be driven by the fact that being in a healthy body is a really good place to be. Like it's where you live. That's where you're gonna spend 80 years or so, you know, traversing the big spinning blue ball um that's that's where you're going to live so you might as well look after it you know and keep it another thing which is really interesting to think about is our body doesn't have to be ref reflective of our chronological age mm. and so even though i'm 59 i've never drunk alcohol i've never been drunk i've never smoked cigarettes i've never been high i've never taken a recreational drug and I've pretty much trained every day of my life, most days of my life since that swimming sports day, right? And so I've built an operating system that despite my not very good genetics, works optimally for me. So one of the benefits is you might be 50, but you could walk around in a body that's the equivalent of 35 or 40 physiologically from a function, from a health, from a cellular health point of view. So your chronological age doesn't need to be reflected in how your body um, functions. And so that's good news too. Yeah, 100%. Hey, psychologically, Craig, when we're talking about this issue, so often you can look in the mirror and just be instantly drawn to the negatives. You're instantly drawn to what you don't like rather than what you do like. And isn't that just true of human nature? Someone can pay you a thousand compliments, but it's the one negative comment or piece of feedback that you just seem to sit and stew on for weeks. Uh, mm. How can we adjust our mindset to be flipped the other way around? Is there anything that we can do? Yeah. Um, look, there's no three-step answer to this, but let me open the door on, um, I dare say, a term you've never heard on Light FM, which is, maybe you have, but metacognition. And metacognition is, it is the area in psychology where we start to think about how we think. Mm. So um, metacognition is literally thinking about, why do I think this way? Why do I why do I look at my body, which objectively is in pretty good shape, and all I do is go, ah, oh, yeah, but look at my hip, or ah, oh, yeah, but look at my wrinkles, oh, you know, like what is this about? 
And I think without being too weird and deep and philosophical, but I am doing a doctorate in neuropsychology, so <laughs> don't blame me, right? Is starting to understand the self. Like who am I beyond my body? Who am I beyond my beliefs and my thinking? Who am I beyond my fear and my anxiety? And also, why do I value my appearance so much? Or why do I why do I consciously want to be healthy and fit, but also at the same time do things to my body with food and lack of exercise that are destructive and toxic? So I think I don't have a simple answer to how do we turn that around, but I think part of it is opening the door on thinking about our inner dialogue, the way that we, the stories that we each have about food, the stories that we have about how we live and socialize. Because the truth is that let's just talk about having a functionally healthy body, like a well body. My mum's 83. She walks every day. My dad's 84. He walks every day. Their biological age is significantly lower than their chronological age, right? So it, it's how do I how do I, the question would be, how do I manage my body optimally so that I can do life well? Because here's the thing, if you're in a body that's three or four out of 10, let's say 10 is your potential. And right now you're sitting at three because you don't sleep great. Your lifestyle is not healthy. You put food in your body that's either not healthy or it's too much, or you don't move your body or, and there's no criticism or judgment here. There's just self-awareness, you know? Then, then we start to become a little bit more, I think, self-aware and able to self-regulate more effectively. Because the truth too is that getting in shape and having a functionally fit, healthy body is not quick, easy, fun, or painless. And we live in a generation that wants quick, easy, fun, and painless. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like yeah. we want the reward without the work. We want the destination without the journey. Mm. And so many people want advice from me and I give them the advice but because the advice is not comfortable or fun, they're like, uh, I think I'll look for a pill. Or I think I'll ask somebody who tells me what I want to hear. <laughs> and as soon as we stop looking for the easy path and we choose the right path, and this is true spiritually, I believe as well. It's like sometimes living our values, living our truth, living our purpose and living our potential, sometimes it just sucks. And we're all grown-ups. That's okay. Mm. That's okay. It's okay that this is hard. It's also okay that the workout you've got to do, you don't love. You don't have to love it. Not everything has to be quick, easy, painless, and fun. <laughs> um, that is such great wisdom. And, you know, we all love hearing it and hate hearing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to ask a question back on something you said earlier about your inner dialogue. Um, because that's where your mindset starts. And often it doesn't start when you're 50. It starts when you're five mm. or 10. Um, I want to ask as a parent, and then we've got many parents listening, mums and dads, can I ask a personal question about your inner dialogue when you said you were an o overweight um, child? What helped you and hindered you from a parental point of view or, you know, influence point of view with teachers and things like that what should we be aware of if we've got an you know really thin child or a really chubby child or what is detrimental and what is helpful as a parent oh now i'm going to sound like a politician joe um when i say that like it depends on the kid 
because all kids are different. Different, You know, it's like, here's something interesting. So you, Cam, and I are in a conversation right now, the three of us, same day, same conversation, but none of us are having the same experience. Mm. Right? We're not in the wow. same personal yeah. reality. We're in the same conversation, but you're not in my head. I'm not in Cam's head. We're not having the same experience. So we need to understand that there's what's going on around us where life happens and then there's what's going on within us where living happens. External life, internal living, right? And so I think to answer your question somewhat specifically, you know, support kids, educate kids um, as, as best as we can, you know, love them unconditionally. But we want our kids to understand the relationship between you know, um, eating well and moving well and looking after your body. And, you know, it's a gift from God. You can't get another one. This is the one you've got. So don't mistreat it. But at the same time, we don't want to create issues with body or issues with eating. So it's a bit of a fine line that we walk. My parents were, I mean, I was raised in a different era. Um, and my parents were as good as they can be. Um, but I think, for me, you know, I I also, I mean, I wasn't a dumb kid, but I I just ate everything that wasn't nailed down because I'm a foodie. Like I'm, if, and that's the other thing. For some people, their issue is motivation. For some people, their issue is getting the exercise right. For some people, it's lifestyle. It's, it's alcohol or cigarettes or whatever. For some people, it's food. And my biggest issue is, for me, it's always been food. So I have had to manage myself and this might sound extreme, but not too differently to perhaps an alcoholic might around alcohol mm. because I can easily eat all the food in the world that I don't need purely because it tastes awesome and it gives me a dopamine response in my brain. And so when we talk about doing things to our body that in the short term feel amazing, but over the long term are really detrimental, um, we're actually addicted to the same thing. And that is the biochemical response in our brain of dopamine. It's just that the pathway is different. Mm. The pathway could be chocolate cake or alcohol or gambling or cocaine, or I don't know, or, or a rate or spending money or Facebook likes or refreshing your feed constantly. Or, I mean, these are things that we are all addicted to. So or shopping. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I did a big departure there. No, it's good. <laughs> no, it's good. It kind of led me. I've got a million questions and not time to ask them all, but your relationship with food is something that we've just talked about. And it's something that as I've listened to you on your podcast, The You Project, many times, this has come up as a topic of discussion. Uh, how important is that in the whole equation? Well, it, I mean, here's the thing, like with with alcohol or with cigarettes or with drugs, we can give them up. With gambling, we can you can't give up food, right? Mm. So it's really important. And I think, I mean, so this is not data. This is observation and anecdotal evidence that I'm about to share. But I believe that the biggest challenge for many Aussies, and I've done over 50,000 personal training sessions and I've employed 500 trainers and had four gyms. So I've got a bit of an idea in this space and had literally tens of thousands of conversations. I would say for most people, the biggest challenge in this getting in shape and staying in shape forever part is side by side uh, motivation and and food, managing food. Uh, the motivation bit we can fix 
which I can talk about if you want. But the food thing is, you know, the challenge with food is that it's so instantly gratifying. And if you don't feel great, you can eat some chocolate if you're a chocoholic and all of a sudden you feel great. Mm. And you're like, that was easy. And then five minutes later, you don't feel great because now you feel bad and guilty. So you have a bit more chocolate and you go, oh, now I feel good. (laughs) And then we're subconsciously saying, but I'll start tomorrow (laughs) or I'll start Monday. And then we wake up about a million Mondays later and we're still telling ourselves the same story that is, I'm going to change soon. I'm not going to change now because that would be painful and require effort and discipline and sacrifice and self-control, but Monday for sure. And that's kind of just our way of not dealing. Mm. Uh, A big question. This topic's called Mindset Reset. Now I'm thinking to myself, we start as a child, we build up a narrative, we have a mindset. But how do you reset it when it's been with you for so long? That is a great question and there's no single answer, but I'll give you some ideas. So I know we don't have heaps of time, but think about this. So so you two and me and all of our listeners, everyone listening to this now has been programmed, right? We've all been programmed to think a certain way, believe a certain way, have certain values, Um, whether or not that's through church, whether or not that's through our family or our culture or our school or media or social media, friendship circle, peers, every kind of inbound stimulus that we've been exposed to has shaped the way that we think. And we we all kind of look at the world through our own window and that is that is our perception. And so Craig looks at the world through the Craig window, which is my values, my beliefs, my ideas, my bias, my, and I wish I had no bias, but if I'm being honest, I do. Why? Because I'm human, Mm. right? And so it's understanding the way that you think, and this is, my PhD is around self-awareness and specifically a thing called meta-perception, which is your ability, Joe, to understand the Joe experience for others you to be able to understand what is it like for other people to be around me. And so when we do a deep dive on our thinking, we can start to identify fears and erroneous assumptions and excuses and all of that stuff. And I think that changing the way that we think happens in a bunch of ways, but probably the best way is to do something that scares you in a strategic, intelligent way Because when you do something, all of a sudden now you've got new data and new information. So for example, someone that's never, and I'm not suggesting you run a marathon, but someone that's never run a marathon or a half marathon or a 10K run, I've helped plenty of people do their first ever run, right? And what happens is one, they go and they do their 10K, their half or their marathon, which is amazing and well done physiologically, good effort. But what happens more um, significantly is this internal cognitive shift where they go, oh, wow, what else can I do? Mm. Oh, wow. Because then they, when you do something that's hard or you do something that scared you, there's this internal shift of awareness and belief and understanding of possibilities and potential. And it's exciting, you know, but you can't get good at the thing that you're not doing. (laughs) You can't master what you avoid. It's like people say to me all of the time, because my main job is corporate speaking how do I overcome my fear of public speaking? And my answer is by public speaking. Yeah. (laughs) You cannot get good by sitting on the couch wanting to be good, but not doing it. Mm. You know, how do you become a black belt in any martial art? You start as a white belt and you get strangled and choked and punched a few thousand times. 
And then eventually over time, you develop resilience and understanding and insight and, and competence and you improve. Mm. And, and, you know, I believe that we don't want to be reckless, but we also want to be able to allow ourselves to do hard things sometimes because it's sometimes in the middle of the strategic hard stuff that we grow and evolve and, you know, become the person that's going to be more resilient, more adaptable in the messiness of life. Yeah, that's awesome, Craig. <laughs> uh, within the context of this issue and within the context of the conversation that we've been having today as well, uh, what's something that might be helpful for us to understand about the way that our brain works? Well, I think it's, I mean, so many things, but think about this, you know, just the, so there's the reality and then there's Cam's reality, Joe's reality and Craig's reality. So, and keeping in mind that, that your version of reality is just a subjective interpretation. So there's the objective reality of, oh, there's a kid out there crying. That's a fact. That's an objective reality. I'm looking out on my street. There's not a kid crying. But <laughs> let's hope there's not anyway. <laughs> right? But then someone might, now, now that's the that's just what's happening. There's a, I don't know why I chose that. Let's say a dog barking. That's That's much less traumatic. And I might go, oh, what a cute dog. I look out there and I look at the dog that's got my attention. I go, wow, that is a cute dog. I love dogs. Someone else looks out their window and they're like, would somebody please shut up that dog? That dog is driving me nuts, right? And so we're all looking at the same thing, but we're each telling ourselves a different story about the objective reality outside the house, which is a barking dog. And so it's being aware of, well, this is just how I think. This is not Joe's reality. This is, you know, so Joe and I sitting at a table trying to solve a problem or trying to resolve conflict or trying to work as part of a team or trying to create together. It's important that I understand how Joe thinks because if I have no idea how Joe thinks, then it's very hard for me to really create great connection and rapport. Mm. And so that's, and it's a really misunderstood and, um, undervalued skill is, and that's called theory of mind in psychology. Theory of mind is understanding how someone else thinks. And that really matters. So if I go and talk to a bunch of 15 year olds in a school or some men in a prison, and I do both of these or some politicians, I'll do that. Uh, Victoria police. I also do that or a general public audience. I need to have an understanding and some insight into the mind of my audience so that I can speak appropriately and and connect in a way that hopefully is meaningful to them. So great. I, I love how you seem to take a complex thing and put it in such a down-to-earth way mm. that you can receive it and hear it afresh. And it's a skill, Craig. It's amazing. Um, just for something, you know, we're doing the Body Beautiful series, you know, in a world where nothing seems real, you know, filters and social media and, you know, everybody's, you know, doing something to look different to how they are. Um what would you say to someone listening right now in the area of, you know, does everybody to be healthy have to be a size 8 to 10? I'm using a woman, for example, size 8 to 10, you know, perfectly toned woman. Is that the healthy body? Um, definitely not. Definitely not. Um, and also thinking that that is optimal, that's also not healthy, you know, um, and there are all shapes and sizes and and it's about, for me, I don't care what anyone looks like. Like, you know, I, I care about how your body works. And so when I, you know, as an exercise scientist over the years, 
I talk to people, you know, exclusively about, well, except for athletes. So we talk about performance, but generally we're talking about function. We're talking about how you feel, how you function, your energy levels. Um, and of course, at the extreme level of obesity, there is a correlation with disease, but that's that's not a that's not an opinion or an insult. That's science, right? But for the most part, no, definitely we don't need to be skinny. We don't need a six pack. We don't even need to be a member of a gym. We just need to have habits and behaviors and a lifestyle which kind of aligns with health, mm. you know. And and the thing is, you don't. You know, like the bloke who has 10 beers on a Saturday, it's not like he doesn't know that that's a bad choice. You know, it's like me. When I when I was 14 years old and eating a, a whole cake, it's not like, oh, I didn't know. <laughs> and, and again, it's this is not about beating ourselves up. This is just about really honesty, humility, self-awareness, self-regulation, you know. Um, and I say to people, what is it that you want? tell me what you want. And then I say, all right, what is it that you need to do to create what you want? You know, and everything requires work. Like you guys building a radio show, doing what you do. You've both got high social and emotional intelligence. That's why you're good at what you do because you're constantly communicating with an audience, but you're not accidentally good. You've done the work to create the outcome. Mm. Craig, this has been a phenomenal conversation. We appreciate your time so much. You're a legend of a human being and it's been our pleasure to chat with you through this issue today from the U Project Craig Harper thank you good sir love your guts team thank you